Moses. He talked about how what the different elements mean and represent. Well, what happens here starting in chapter 5 is they're actually going to dedicate the temple. Now, guys, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is such a big deal because this is where God's presence was going to be here on earth. And the temple was going to be the center of worship. It was going to be the center of the Jewish community. I cannot stress this to you enough. This doesn't sound like a big deal to us because we're not Jewish and we're not living 2,500 years ago. If we were living, actually it would be longer than that, if we were living 3,000 years ago and we were Jewish, this would be huge. God's presence coming down on earth and going to live in this temple. And this is how we would interact with God. It's a huge deal. Now for us, we kind of take this for granted. Because Corinthians tells us that you and I, our bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, to me, that's just absolutely amazing. I've been walking with the Lord now 23 years, and I still can't fully get that. God has chosen to live inside you and I, and our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, back now in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7, the Lord makes His presence on this earth. And this is the building He has designed. This is the temple He has designed And we talked about the design of that last week. We talked about the furnishings of that a few weeks ago. Now, here's the dedication of the temple. And let's jump into this and see what happens. Verse 1, chapter 5. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers, the children of Israel, and Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, the Levites took up the ark, then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishes that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. And also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most highly place, holy place under the wings of the cherubim. Like I said, if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to copy of that. Richard went into detail about what these things mean and represent and how they're a picture of Christ and the outlining of what the temple was. What you basically need to know is this. They're bringing the ark in. They're bringing all the furnishing is. The building is done. The temple is done. And it's time to set up house in that. So they call everybody together. You got the kings. You got the leaders. You got the Levites. You got the priest. This is happening during the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 3. So this would be here in the fall. What a celebration this would be. They're ready to move in. If you've ever moved into a new house, you know the excitement of that. Well, you're moving into the new house of God. This is kind of a big deal. So as they're moving in, there's a celebration, there's an excitement. Now, there's a couple points I need to make real quick. First off, verse 1. All the work is done. All the work Solomon has done. All the work that David put into it. It took about seven years, the Bible says, for this temple to get done. So the first thing I want to let you know is time. Now, the second thing that you see here is this was a team effort. The two T's. It takes time and it's a team effort. Can you keep your hand here in 2 Chronicles 5 and go with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 3? Time and a team effort. Let God move in his time. Seven years to build this thing, not including all the years that David prepared stuff and got everything ready. It takes time. Now, when I first got saved, I just assumed and expected that everybody would get saved right away. I did not understand the concept of planting seeds and letting it grow in God's time. 
When I first became a pastor out here, I just expected that people would get healed in their marriages and their relationships and their addictions right away. And I never understood why it took so much time. Now they've been walking with the Lord for a while and been out here for a while. I start realizing, okay, Lord, this is all in your time. Marriages don't fall apart overnight. They don't get fixed overnight. Lives don't fall apart overnight. Generally, they don't get fixed overnight. We're all a work in progress. And can we be patient to allow the Lord to work? It took years to build this temple. It took years to gather all the supplies. And the day is finally here. If you have something going on in your life right now and God's not moving quick enough, I just encourage you, let him work in his time. Maybe there's something you're struggling with and the Lord's not giving you the healing quick enough. He's not giving you the answer quick enough. Let him work in his time. If there's somebody you love that's not saved, let the Lord work on their heart. He's got time. We're the ones trying to rush him. Let him work in his time. Next thing I want to make the point of, it's a team effort. David had a part in this. Solomon had a part in this. The workers had a part in this. Even foreign kings had a part in this. Everything we do is a team effort. 1 Corinthians 3, go ahead and start in verse 1. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, what he's basically saying is, hey, I wanted to talk to you as mature believers, but I couldn't. Why couldn't I talk to you as mature believers? Because you guys are acting like babes, babies. Why? Verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now, you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. He goes, I can't give you solid food. You guys are still little babies spiritually. What were they doing that made them babies spiritually? Verse 3, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? He goes, listen, I can't take you deeper in the Lord. I can't give you the solid meat because you guys are acting like babies because you're having envy, strife, and divisions. You're fighting over things. What could they possibly be fighting over? Verse 4, for one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am Apollos. Are you not carnal? They were fighting over whose they were. Why follow Paul? Why follow Apollos? And they had these little teams, these little sects, these little divisions, and they thought their little group was the best. What does Paul say? Verse 5. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It's not about us. How many times have we been saying that lately? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Never, ever make it about you. And never, ever make it about your church or your ministry or whatever. Because it's all about Christ. If somebody comes into this church and they're on fire for the Lord and they bless us and they start up ministries and God just uses them mightily, what did we do? Nothing. They came prepared and ready. Somebody had already planted and watered. It's the Holy Spirit that gets the credit. We are opportunity out here maybe just planting. Somebody may come and we may plant seeds in them and they may move on in life to other ministries or other churches. Hey, the love them while we have them and while they're here, let's plant. Somebody may come in with a very small walk with the Lord. We have the opportunity to water them and see them grow and then they may go do something else. Amen. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. He goes, wait a second, guys. You can't claim any of this. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. It always bugs me when I see pastors and ministries and churches trying to make it about themselves. It's about Christ. I always say this. A lot of times churches and pastors and ministries are like tomcats marking their territory. It's awful. No, it's not about us. It's about the Lord. And what you see here in the temple, it's a team effort. 
to see that temple get built. It's a team effort to see God get the glory. And that has not changed at all today. Everything we do is a team effort. You may plant, you may water, but God gives the increase. Whatever your role is, hey, just be blessed in it. If you get a chance to pick the fruit off the tree, amen. You may get a chance to plant the seed. You may get a chance to water the seed. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And we got to remember that and all that we say and all that we do. Jump back now, if you will, to Second Chronicles 5. So it takes time. And it's a team effort. Remember those T's. It takes time. It's a team effort. Don't rush God and allow the Lord to work through many different things in many different ways. What do we see happening here? They're bringing the ark up. And you see that in verses 7 through 10. And the ark is something we've talked about before. Uh, Dustin, can you put that picture up real quick of the ark? We did this back in the beginning part of January. Just a quick visible reminder of what the ark looks like and what it means and represents. That's what we're talking about here. Um, in the ark, according to the book of Hebrews, at one time they had the Ten Commandments were in there. They had Aaron's rod that budded that was in there. They had a golden pot of manna that was in there. And this ark represented the presence of God. This would have been back behind the curtain that Richard talked about last week, that very thick curtain. And they would only go in here one day a year, day of Pullman, Yama of Kippur, to go in there and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat up top. And that sprinkling of blood took care of the sins of the nation for the entire year. If you want more studying on this, I encourage you to go to Exodus 25. Make that part of your devotional life tonight here, Exodus 25. And you can really learn about what the ark was and what that meant and represented. But this ark being there was the key thing. This is the final piece being moved in. I can remember when Dawn and I have moved before. You'd move everything, and the last thing you move is what? Your bed. Because wherever your bed's at, that's where you're sleeping. Well, this is God's bed, if you will. When he moves the ark, that's where he's at. So the bed's moved in. It's behind the Holy of Holies there. And it's time for everything to start. So what do they do to start the party out? Well, take a look at this here real quick. Verses 13 and 14. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. They start worshiping. Oh, you got to love that. They just start worshiping as one. Look at the repetition there in verse 13. They were singing, the trumpeters and the players were as one, making one sound. You see a unity in worship. There were no worship wars. I've been out here as the pastor for 18 years, and there's always worship wars. Style, volume, worship. And I really think we overlook worship. Sometimes we have a tendency to worship worship. When really worship is supposed to be just about focusing on the Lord. And you hear terms like this. I I go to that church, but the worship's not good. Well, what makes the worship not good? They're not singing about Jesus? Well, no, they sing about Jesus. Well, what? It's the style. It's the sound. It's the volume. Everybody's got a personal opinion. Everybody's got a personal preference. And you've got to remember, it's not about style, but it's about a heart for Christ. It's amazing how often we all become music critics. When it comes to worship. No, I love verse 13. You got the singers, you got the trumpeters, verse 13. They're one, making one sound and just praising and thanking the Lord. Because that's the focus of it. But guess what happens, verse 14, that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. 
For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Can you imagine being at this scene? The Ark of the Covenant comes in. I mean, this would be amazing to see the Ark. Now, the Ark would have been covered as they brought it in because that's how they carried it. But still, you're standing there and the Ark is in front of you. That's rare beyond rare because once this Ark gets in the Holy of Holies, high priest, one time a year, is the only guy that ever gets to see the Ark. This is literally a once in a lifetime. I shouldn't even say it's once in a lifetime. Because you wouldn't even see the ark in your lifetime. So here you are, you're praising, you're worshiping, the ark is there, and all of a sudden you stop worshiping. Why? Because verse 14, this cloud comes down and just covers it. Now that cloud, most of us refer to as the Shekinah glory. That that's God's presence in that cloud. And this cloud thing is something that is constantly used throughout the Bible. God always hides his glory in a cloud. As you guys know, in Exodus, he used the cloud to move Israel where they needed to go. When God wanted to speak to Moses, he spoke from the cloud. The cloud came over the tabernacle. The cloud was here. The cloud was in the veil of the Holy of Holies. And it's not even in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus was transfigured, the cloud was there too. And this cloud represents this presence of God. Can you imagine that? You're worshiping, you're praising, and all of a sudden the ark is covered in this cloud That'd be amazing. You know what's even more amazing than that? Is God says, hey, I'm going to make your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, think about that for a second. All this praise, all this worship, all this animal sacrifice, God's presence in a cloud. And we take for granted that as soon as you and I get saved, and as soon as we accept Christ as our Savior, God decides to take up presence in our heart. And we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing picture that is. So now we're set up for the prayer from Solomon. Anybody make any quick questions, comments here about uh, 2 Chronicles 5 before we move on? Okay. Now, we're getting ready for this prayer. Obviously, can you imagine this beautiful scene that's going on here? So Solomon gets up in front of everybody, and he starts out with this speech. And then he gets to this prayer. Now, for him to do the prayer, what he does is verse 13. He's made this bronze platform. Five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. A cubit is about 18 inches there. So he makes this platform. And this platform is not for his glory. Because look what he does here in verse 13. In the midst of the court, he stood on it, knelt down on his knees, before all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hand towards heaven. This is the king of Israel setting the example. That he builds this platform not to elevate him so that people can see him, though, and hear him. Not to give him the glory. He gets down on his hands and knees, puts his hands up in the air, and he gives this amazing prayer here. Just to say, Lord, this day is yours. Now, I'm not trying to say you model your prayer after this. But this prayer has got everything you need when it comes to prayer. We're just going to break this down here real quick. Look how he starts off his prayer, verse 14. Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you, you with all their hearts. Start your prayer time off with praise. Can't stress that to you enough. We talked about prayer a few weeks ago when we were going through Matthew and we talked about the Lord's Prayer, how it starts out with praise. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start your prayer time off with praise. Now, granted, there's times where you're praying over something And I don't want to make it sound like you don't have time to praise. I remember distinctly one time, it was uh, Friday. It was a Friday, Black Friday. It was before Dawn and I had kids. And we decided we were going to go to Finley to go shopping for Black Friday. And the roads were really bad. It was slick. It was icy. We took off very early in the morning. We were there on 18 heading towards Finley. We hit a slick spot. And the car, my car does a 180. 
and there was another car coming. And I remember distinctly just saying out loud, Jesus, help us. Now, I didn't stop and say, oh, Father, great and glorious God that created this snow and ice. You know, praise you for your grace. You're not, by that time, I'd be dead. No, Jesus, help us. There are times when you're saying, Lord, be with me. But I'm saying when you take that time and you hope you make that time, not because you have to, but because you want to, to spend time with the Lord. When you get up in the morning, start your day out and praise. And don't, don't get going on, the well, i got nothing to praise him about. You praise him for just being God. You just praise him for being God. Look here at verse 14. There's none like you. There's no God in heaven like you. You, you keep your covenant. You show us mercy. You're God. Start out with praise. What else do you pray when it comes to this? Well, if you look in verses 15, 16, and 17, you pray God's word. Look at specifically verse 17. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. I've noticed a lot in my prayer life that I pray scriptures for people. If there's somebody really struggling with something, I find a verse that deals with it, and I pray that verse for them. Or if I'm going through devotions, and I come across, I don't know, Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God, my mind starts going, who, who did I talk to this week that's really nervous about something? That's really worried, that's really worked up. Lord, I give this to you. Lord, I pray that Joe would not be nervous. I pray that Susie would not be anxious. I pray that passage for him. Remember in Isaiah, God's word does not return void. So why not pray his word? And it really keeps you focused. It really keeps you focused on him. I encourage you, for if you've got kids at home, find a verse for that child and pray that verse for that child. If your spouse is maybe where they're not supposed to be spiritually, find a verse, claim that verse for your spouse and pray that for them. Pray verses for us as a church. Pray verses for ministry. Just pray scripture. It's a beautiful thing. Now he starts getting to the specifics. Do you know He's humble in verse 13. He's praising in verse 14. He's praying God's word in verse 17. He finally gets to his needs. I don't know about you, but most of the time when we pray, we just go right to our needs. Lord, be with me today. I've got a big day today. Help me through this. And oh, by the way, thank you and praise you. Amen. He starts out with a humbleness and a praise and giving God's word. And then he gets to his needs. What needs do we, does he have? It's kind of fascinating. 3,000 years later, it's the same needs that you and I have. Verse 22. He has neighbor problems. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act and judge. Your servants bringing retribution on the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Do you have problems with coworkers? Do you have problems with family members? Do you have problems with neighbors, friends, spouses, etc.? Verses 22 and 23. They're your neighbor. Remember, Jesus did a whole parable, and who is my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. And what did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. So what does he spray here specifically in verses 22 and 23? I love it. How simple is verse 23? Hey, Lord, if they've done wicked, judge them. If they've done righteous, bless them. I can agree with that. Most of the time when you pray, though, aren't you acting like a lawyer giving your case to God? Lord, this co-worker, you know how rough he is. You know how tough he is. You know how awful he is. No one can stand him, Lord. Remove him. Get him out of the way. Actually, Solomon says, you know what? If they've done good, bless them. If they've done evil, let them be judged. It takes it out of your hands. So you have neighbor problems. Lord, I just give this person to you. Okay, what about world problems? I don't know if you guys know or not, but there's an election going on this year. And everybody has an opinion. Every four years, we get behind a mortal man or woman, and we claim they're going to fix the country. 
What does Solomon do here? Verse 24. Or if your people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you give them and their fathers. He gives the nation to the Lord. Lord, if we've done sin, reveal that and we'll confess it. What a great prayer. Instead of looking at people as enemies politically and having anger and frustration, Solomon just says, Lord, if we've sinned, show it to us as a nation. So that way we can turn to you again. So we have neighbor problems. We have world problems. Well, now he has needs. Verse 26. Heavens are shut up and there's no rain. Lord, we will confess to you. Verse 27, what happens though when it comes and you send the rain? Well, thank you for that. Verse 28, when there's famine or blight or mildew, locust or grasshoppers. Now he gives his needs to him. Lord, always meet our needs. Help us through the famine. Help us through the blight. Help us through the drought. There's nothing wrong with giving your needs to the Lord. Every now and then I have somebody come up to me say something to the effect of how difficult it is for them to pray for themselves. I have never struggled with that. (laughs) I pray for myself all the time. I pray for myself more than I pray for you guys. And before you think that's unbiblical, look at how many times Jesus prayed for himself. There's nothing wrong with praying and giving your needs over to the Lord. A lot of times what I'm praying is, Lord, give me the strength and the wisdom so I can minister to other people. See, he gives his needs to the Lord. But look, before he gives his needs to the Lord, he's humble, he's praising God's word, Lord, have I sinned against a neighbor? Is the world need you? And now I give you the needs. I give you these things and trust that you're going to take care of them. Now he gives his personal problems to the Lord. Verse 29. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, now it gets personal. And I look at this example, and I'm not saying that you have to be legalistic in this example. Most of the time, I just jump to verse 29 in my prayers. Lord, this is what's bothering me. Solomon takes a while to get to that. Here's his personal thing. My burdens, my griefs, my concerns. Lord, I give them to you. But guess what? Verse 30. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. You know, when we're singing that last worship song, you know, Good, Good Father, he knows what you need. Have you ever had that prayer time where you just kind of sit there thinking, Lord, I I really don't think you see what's going on in my life right now. Do you not see how much of a burden this is? Do you not see how much I'm struggling physically, spiritually, emotionally? Verse 30, he knows the hearts of the sons of men. I mean, come on, parents, you know this with your kids. I tell you, the, the one that can't hide it in our house is Layden. He just can't hide it. He walks into his room. You can just look at his face and know immediately what's going on. And the weird thing about Layden is if you go up and say, Buddy, what's wrong? Nothing. Buddy, something's wrong. I said nothing. And the crocodile tears just start falling down. Then why are you crying? I'm not. I'm not stupid, buddy. I see what's going on here. See, we have a father in heaven, verse 30, that we can't fool. Don't most of us spend of our lives just trying to make ourselves look good in front of others? How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Jesus is really moving my life, and I love him. How's your time in the Word? Amazing. Just got done studying Jeremiah, greatest book ever. And we just try to make ourselves look good. Where Father in Heaven is kind of like going, come on, James, quit faking it. I know you're struggling. I know you're hurting. Well, Lord, I don't want anybody to know that. Why? I know you're hurting. 
I know, and I'm here, and I care. What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to grow us, verse 31, that they may fear you, to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you give to our fathers. Personal spiritual growth. Lord, I want to fear you. Now, fear you comes across rough. Fear means healthy respect. Lord, I really want to have a healthy respect for who you are, and I want to grow in you, and I want to go deeper in you. And not only grow when you and go deeper in you, now I want to tell everybody about you. 32 and 33. You don't think of evangelism in the Old Testament. But guess what? It's right there. Look at verse 32. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who's not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do your people Israel and that they may know that this temple which I build is called by your name. Look what Solomon is praying. Lord, when the foreigners come, let them know you personally. Lord, we are opening up our temple, our country, our land to you to be a light and a witness in all that we say and all that we do. Evangelism. Old Testament evangelism. And Lord, when we go into battle, verse 34, help us to remember this temple. See, you're going to go into battles every day of your life. Some of your battles may be at home. Some of your battles are at work. Some of your battles are at church. When you go into battle, what Solomon is saying, Lord, help us to remember the temple. Because your temple is your presence. And here's the hard part. Verse 36, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Great theological statement there. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were, carried captive and repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong and have committed wickedness. When they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been carried captive and pray toward their land, which you have given to the fathers, the city which you were chosen and toward this temple, which I have built for your name. He's basically saying, listen, Lord, when we sin, and we're all going to sin, help us to remember we can just repent and you forgive us. This prayer, it's got everything. Starts out in humbleness, goes into praise and worship. He prays God's word. He gives the neighbor problems. He gives the world problems. Then he gives his personal needs. Then he gives them his personal problems. And reminds them that, Lord, these personal problems are going to help me grow in you. Then he prays for evangelism. He prays for strength in the battle. And he finally ends up by saying, Lord, when I sin, and I know I'm going to sin, Lord, help me to always remember I can come back to you. And this temple is a picture of that, that I can always come back to you, Lord, of your grace and your mercy. I always hate it when somebody represents the God of the Old Testament as this awful, nasty, horrible God. What did we just see in this prayer? We saw a loving father. We saw an evangelism to the world. We saw a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. This is the God we serve and love. And this is the God we're trying to tell people about in all that we do and say. So what a wonderful prayer there and a great focus for us. And I hope that impacts our prayer life as well. Now, before we get into chapter 7, anybody any quick questions, comments here? Ryan. Yep. And when God responds to this prayer, jump ahead to chapter 7, uh, verse 19. This is God's response to Solomon. 
But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have sanctified my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And as for this house, talking about the temple, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and saying, Why has the Lord done this to the land in this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore, he's brought all this calamity on them. God comes right out and says, listen, guys, the way this deal works, this is Old Testament deal. You serve me, you love me with all your heart, I'll take care of you. When you guys choose to reject me, you'll still be my people, because I'll never forsake you. But you're going to get punished. You're going to get disciplined. And he actually says, my discipline on you at the end of chapter 7 is actually a witnessing tool to the rest of the world. He goes, my discipline is a way that I'm going to witness to the rest of the world. So you're absolutely right, Ryan. You know, Solomon's prayer foreshadows what's going to happen. And God basically confirms that in chapter 7. Hey, listen, I know what's going to happen. You guys are going to betray me and leave me. And when that happens, I'm still here for you and I still love you. But I'm going to use this as a witnessing tool. That's the beauty of the Lord. Whatever happens will work for good. Now, we've got to remember, good. This is my little pet peeve. Everybody has a different definition of good. God is working good in your life right now. Now, you may look in the little spiritual mirror of life and say, well, I don't think this is good. He's not judging good on your definition of good. He's judging good on his definition of good. You've got to remember his definition of good. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. So... God's response to this, chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Wouldn't you love to see that? I would love to have seen that. That fire come down and just the celebrate. I mean, think about what's going on here. You got this, the, you see the ark coming in. You got the praise and worship. You got this prayer. Here's your king before you, kneeling, giving this over to the Lord. Then all of a sudden, this fire comes down from heaven. And, and it just, all this just happens. There's something just amazing about, about fire and just God's presence. God says that he is a consuming fire. And we're just fascinated by it, aren't we? We're doing this Monday school out here on Monday at Harvest Academy. And I've always wanted to do it, and I've never had the guts to do it. And I've reached a point now where I'm like, ah, I don't care anymore. So we're building rockets. So I went out and I bought 200-proof ethanol alcohol. Very, very flammable. And so we were, we're building rockets. And I was smart enough to do it outside. So I went outside with the first class. And I couldn't get the stuff to light and explode because it was so windy and whatever. And I really wanted to do it. This was on Monday. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it inside. So I went into room eight. And that's where my class is. And I started doing some of the experiments. And it was going really good. And I wanted to set one of the rockets off. You make your homemade rocket with ethanol alcohol. So I lit it off. And it went across the room. Then it caught the carpet on fire. So I'm trying to stomp it out. It doesn't work real well to stomp out an ethanol alcohol fire. But it was really cool. I'm just telling you it was really cool. There's no point to the story other than saying fire is really cool. So can you imagine being there and seeing this fire come down? And, and this was, the, to understand this sacrifice, look at verse 5. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So all the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. 
Now, see, when I heard verse 5, instead of thinking about how many animals that was, I just stopped and I thought, and those animals couldn't cover a single sin. Isn't that amazing? All those animals died, all that blood was shed, and not a single sin was forgiven. Hebrews 9 said sins can be covered up by the blood of animals. But then, fast forward a few thousand years, I should say fast forward about a thousand years, and you got Jesus, who one man, his blood took care of all the sins. You didn't need to have 100,000 saviors. You didn't need to have 20,000, whatever. You just had to have one man who died on the cross for our sins. I think of that in Romans 5. Sin came through the world in one man, but through one man we were justified. And that's a beautiful picture of how Christ, one man. What is the result of all this praise and worship and sacrifice in God's presence? Look at verse 10. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, for his people Israel. That's always the result of sacrifice and service and praise and worship and fellowship. The result is always joy. There's just a joy about it. Just getting together as believers, I love this. I'll, I'll walk away from tonight on a spiritual high. It's just fun to get together. Just to see what the Lord's doing in people's lives and just to be excited about what God is doing. The result is always joy. Now to finish up real quick, God responds to Solomon. And in this prayer response, I should say this response, you you see a very famous verse. Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now we read the second half of that. Hey guys, if you don't do this, judgment will come. Now for some reason, every time we quote Second Chronicles 7.14, we never quote the second part of that statement. So we like to focus on verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I've heard that verse quoted so many times over our nation. And it's a wonderful verse. But did you look at what this verse is really saying? Verse 14, first step is, you have to humble yourselves. Boy, are we willing to humble ourselves as an individual, as a nation, as a people? Are we willing to seek his face? Verse 14. I think we live in a world right now where not many people want to seek the face of the Lord. They're willing to seek some type of morality. They're willing to seek some type of religious make me feel good. But are people really willing to seek the Lord? And last one, and turn from their wicked ways. See, a lot of people want to seek the face of God but not turn from their wicked ways. This verse is a package deal. Humble yourself, seek me, and turn and then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But we have to be willing to humble ourselves, seek him, and turn. And then, and if they chose not to, we already read verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from this land which I have given them. God makes it very clear. That's the thing about the Lord. If you go back and read the Old Testament, he's very clear on this. You serve me, you love me, I will always take care of you and I'll be your God. If you choose to reject me, I'll still be your God. But there's going to be a discipline. Same thing happens in the New Testament. 
Hey, you want eternal security of salvation in Jesus in heaven? Hey, then accept Christ as your Savior. You want to flirt with the other? Then there's a hell. God always makes it abundantly clear what the plan is. And we just have to choose whether to accept or reject that. We really do. And what this comes down to is, as we read 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7, I, I see a God that says, I want you, Israel. I really do. And I want to be your God. I want to be in the temple. I want this fellowship with you. But you guys have to want me as well. And I think of the passage in James 4. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. God promises that. So I don't know where you're at today, but I do know this. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing picture of the Lord. You are this temple. God's presence and glory dwells within you. And you're walking around as a little holy of holies. And God is with you wherever you go. And what a blessing and amazing picture that is of just to know the relationship he has with us. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here before we close up? Ryan. Yes. That's absolutely right. Uh, when Moses asked to see God, God says, basically, you can't handle this. He goes, go hide in the cleft of the rock, and as I walk by you, I'll, my hand will cover you to protect you. And then when I walk past you, I'll kind of let you look at the of me walking away, if you will, like you said, the end of the train, because they would not be able to handle this. So this cloud thing is actually a protection, if you will, because the people couldn't handle the glory of God. You know, until we're in our glorified bodies up in heaven, we can't handle the glory of God. We're in our sinful, fleshly bodies. We need to be made in His image in all ways and all things. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, we want to do what this passage says. We want, we want to have a time of prayer like that, of praise. We want a time of prayer of seeking you in your, in your will and in word and confessing and coming to you. Lord, we want to realize who we are as believers in you and that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you have chosen to dwell within us. And with that responsibility, we want to be a light. We want to be a witness. Lord, we don't want to be the same. Help us, Lord, to see the, the privilege we have, the blessing we have. And, Lord, we stop and say thank you for what you're doing, what you've done. We love you and we praise you. And, Lord, we pray that you go before us in all ways. And, and real quickly, Lord, we want to lift up uh, Becca Hoagland back in the hospital. Again, pray your hand of health and healing on her. And also, uh, we said we'd mention uh, Robin, Robin Courtney, too, with some health concerns and some tests coming up. Your hand of health and healing be upon her as well, too. We lift this up in your name. Amen. If you guys have anything you want to pray about, feel free to grab me, grab somebody here. We'd love to pray. But if not, you guys have a good week and God bless.